0: So it's been a while since I've been up here, I have to say I'm a little bit nervous, to be honest. Um, anyway, I, I did specifically ask Dave to sing that song this morning. Uh, that, not that rendition, but it was amazing, loved it. Uh, but just uh, wanted to share my story a little bit with some of you guys. A lot of you guys know me, so it might be a little bit of old shoe, but for those that don't know me, I'm going to share a little bit of my past. But before I do that, here at Northgate, we've been studying the words of Jesus so we've been looking in the Gospels and we've been just, what does Jesus say? And then, so I was meditating on that. I was like, oh man, like, you know, God, when God speaks, it changes lives, amen? Like that, it changes people's lives. And, and it got me thinking, you know, what, what have my words been like? And, and I have to say that I was really convicted this week. Um, and so here's how I want to start. I just want to apologize publicly, if I've ever used my words to offend you, or to <laughs> do anything but honor and to encourage and to glorify Christ, then I just want to ask for your forgiveness. And uh, I'm a person, right? And I have failures, <laughs> but I just felt like I couldn't do this message, I couldn't speak this without, without, without saying that completely convicted to do that, and so. Um, yeah, I just want my words to be encouraging to people. I want my words, and I just feel like that God's been working that in my life for a long time, and I'm not perfect. You know, I, I have stumbled, and I've uh, used my words in not-so-encouraging ways, and so please forgive me if I've done that to you. And, uh, and maybe the Lord starts something in your heart. Maybe maybe your speech hasn't been the best either, and that's between you and the Lord. But I'm going to share a little bit of my story with you guys, and then I'm going to look at some portion of Scripture where Jesus says something and what the response is to that, and then we're going to fold that back into my story, and share some things with you guys. So I'm kind of excited to do that. Um, and again, I didn't, uh, I don't have this written out in point form. I've probably shared my testimony, at least a hundred times over the last decade. It's that kind of story. It's, uh, it's colorful. It's, it's, uh, it's got a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff in it, and I'll try to keep it PG. But uh, Basically, my father was an alcoholic, a raging alcoholic heading towards death and all of his brothers were alcoholics and as far as I know that his father and his father and his father were all alcoholics. My dad's grandfather came from off the boat from Ireland in the early turn of the 20th century and uh, with, the, I believe, grade three education and they just worked really hard uh, farming and railroad and all that but they were drinkers and they drank and they drank and they drank And my dad was a raging alcoholic and an atheist. And he married my mom. And my mom was a little woman, French woman, who uh, never heard the word, I love you, in her home. It was never, hey, we're proud of you. It was, you know, oh, you got 85% on the exam. What happened to the 15%? And that's the kind of lifestyle she grew up in. And she was actually raised by her grandmother because her grandmother showed her more care and love than her parents. My mom was raised Catholic, but my dad spent the first seven years of that marriage convincing her that god was stupid and that um, if you believe in any kind of god you're stupid and so i was born into that and my dad did get sober when i was i think believed before i was born but he was uh, a raging dry sober you know he was just a really angry hate-filled man Uh, i remember a lot a lot of screaming and yelling and and violence in my home Uh, And I have a brother who's one year older, and he... I guess my parents were... I don't know what they were doing, but he poured a pot of stew on himself and uh, and almost died. He was only two years old. And that set off a chemical imbalance in his mind. And so when he was young, he would do some really weird things. Uh, You know, he hurt animals. Uh, He hurt me a lot. There's a lot of abuse from the age of, I believe, of three years old till I can remember, I think I was 15 when I finally punched him in the face, and then he stopped, but he would abuse me, he would punch me, he would kick me, he would spit on me. I remember he urinated on me in front of kids. Uh, I remember he threw me down a set of stairs. I remember him hitting me in the head with a gun, the butt end of a gun. And uh, I, I faced that kind of abuse basically my whole childhood from him. And then I would go off into school and then face all sorts of physical abuse from the kids as well in school and so I say that my whole childhood was riddled with abuse whether it be physical emotional I I, I kind of faced every form of abuse there was and by the time I was 10 years old I was just a mess now when I was six my atheist dad got invited to go to a Pentecostal service on a Sunday night and met the Lord in in a massive way like a Saul to Paul conversion like knocked off his horse uh, and, uh, and forever changed, praise the Lord. And, and now him and my mom have been serving the Lord for, well, since 1985. And so, amazing, but by the time I was 10 years old, be, all the abuse had already happened. Everything, basically my whole um, life had been defined by that moment, defined by neglect and rejection, and, and, and not feeling wanted, not feeling loved, not feeling likable, not feeling cared for. And, uh, and I, remember, I remember having experiences with the Lord. Uh, we were forced into church. It was Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, Tuesday crusaders, Wednesday night Bible study, and Friday night youth group when I finally got old enough. And, uh, and so church was something that we lived in, and I had experiences with the Lord. But I'd say that by the time I was 10, because of the abuse, that my, my heart was so filled with hatred that I didn't care anymore. And I began to hate everybody. I began to hate literally everyone around me I wished everyone was dead uh, uh, including my siblings and my parents I just didn't want anyone around and which was really confusing because if you ever filled with with God's spirit or or God's love I would say that I would say I'd experienced God's love as a child I I feel he would send these feelings of would wash over me and, and I would just begin to weep and feel this love from God but then Monday would come and I would just be riddled with hate and so my heart was just completely hardened and so my life began to look very much like that. I got suspended from grade school and high school, I think, gosh, at least 20 times. Uh, and, and that was my life. Like, I just acted out, and I never cared about the consequences. I never cared about the end result or anything. You know, we'd say that to someone now, right? Like, just think things through, right? Just just think it through and look at the end result. Maybe that'll help you change your mind. And it should, right? We should We should be able to do that, but I, looking back, I can say I would do that, and then, the, and then my answer was, I don't care. And so I did a lot of really stupid things that got me into a lot, of, a lot of trouble. You know, I ended up in juvenile detention a number of times from the age of 16 onwards, and finally adult prison as well for a little bit. And, uh, and I just made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. I ran away from home when I was 16 and uh, hitched across Canada by myself, and I would do that five or six times throughout my teenagehood into my early 20s and, uh, and just making really bad decisions and, uh, and began to dabble in drugs and alcohol. And uh, I can tell you that the first time I tried drugs, I did not like it. There was nothing appealing to it. It made me feel sick. But the people that were doing it with were giving me attention. And so I just continued to do it. And um, obviously I don't have enough time to tell you my whole story this morning, but when I was 17, we moved from North Bay to Burlington, Hamilton area, and I got introduced to crystal bath. It had just kind of come into Canada around that time, the same time as ecstasy did, and I went on an eight-month binge and then almost died, and uh, and and end up in the hospital, get my stomach pumped, and that whole thing. And uh, and I remember, and I came out of that, and I was, I remember probably for the first time in my life thinking, wow, I got like, I got problems, and uh, and then but. But not enough to dig into it and, and, and looking back I could say that if you were to ask me what my problems were I would have yelled at you, got mad at you and said I don't have any problems, that everything's everybody else's fault. And I blamed everybody for everything in my life. If my brother hadn't done this and my mother hadn't done that and if this person hadn't done this and I never owned anything in my life, I never looked at anything that I had ever done, of course only knowing that now in hindsight, right? Uh, but I swore myself off of the chemicals for a while, and then I just dove into drinking and, and, smoking, and smoking dope. And um, so I ended up hitchhiking for the last time out west when I was 22. And a uh, whole bunch of colorful stories and all that, but we don't need to go there. But basically, I ended up in Lake Louise, Alberta, and selling drugs, living on couches. And I woke up on my 23rd birthday, August the 8th, 2001, and um, so I'm dating myself a little bit, but anyway, um, there's this song by Blink182, and it's just blaring out these lyrics. It says, No one likes you when you're 23. <laughs> no one likes you when you're 23. Like it's just blaring that out. And I woke up, I'm like, It's my 23rd birthday. I looked down, everything I got owned got stolen. Everything. My whole duffel bag, like I was, my whole life was in this duffel bag. Like it was all my everything. It was like my complete CD collection, it was my clothes, it was my everything was in this one duffel bag and it was gone, gone. All my dope, all my money, everything. I literally had the underwear that I was wearing. So I had to get up and this guy was like looking at me. I'm like, you got a pair of pants, bro? He comes out with a pair of capris. <laughs> they were like, down to here, I'm like, I gotta hitchhike all the way back to North Bay, Ontario. And a pair of capris. (laughs) I wasn't going to ask him, sure, a shirt because I wouldn't know what I'd get. So I stole another guy's shirt. It was like a DC shirt. I stole a pair of shoes at the door because I literally had everything taken from me. And I I began to think about it. I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm 23 years old. I don't have a driver's license, birth certificate, a health card even. I've got nothing. Like, loser... And, and, and you look around and you look at the people that are 23 years old in my life and that I grew up with, and they all had jobs and careers and a wife and probably a kid on the way. And this was the normal, right? But it wasn't normal for me. This was, this was far from normal for me. And this was, in that time, I could tell you, impossible for me. Um, I hitchhiked back home with my tail between my legs with the pair of Capris on. So it was hard to hide the tail. No, I'm just kidding. Hard to hide the tail. But anyway. Um, I remember getting back and I was just in this really, really depressed state. And The next month was September 2001 and we all know what that signifies, right? So my, my friends, and I was on a bender, and my friends waking me up and she's shaking me and she's like, look at the TV, man, planes are hitting buildings. And I was like, I was kind of in a stupor and I was kind of looking and, and honestly, I was just void. Like it didn't impact me in any way. And, and, and so think about maybe that when you guys heard about it. Think about when you guys heard, about it, what was your reaction? Like probably like, oh my goodness, right? Like probably like your heart was like something. But I had been suppressing my feelings by doing drugs for so long and pushing everything down. I literally did not care that people were dying. It's just the truth. And um, anyway, I remember saying to myself, like it's, you need to man up. Like, it's time to man up in your life. You're 23 years old. So I moved in with my parents. You can laugh. That was a joke. No, I truly did move in with my parents. But I actually remember saying, like, it was time to man up. And my parents invited me to come back down. And they were living in Hamilton at the time. And so I actually got a job doing concrete forming. And uh, back then, minimum wage was six seventy an hour. And I was making 10 bucks an hour. So I mean, I wasn't making a fortune. But I was making probably the first honest money I'd ever made in my life. And uh, things started to look good. Like, I mean, I felt good about myself. I didn't know that I could work hard. I thought I was just a lazy bum who sold drugs and did drugs. And um, so I felt really good for a while. And then I had a friend come. And in between that job, I was building swimming pools with another guy. And this young guy was working there and he offered us to buy some, some cocaine. And uh, I never tried it up to that point, and I remember my memory from when I was 21, from the drug overdose of crystal meth, and I was really afraid to do it. But we ended up doing it, and it ended up taking me on this four-year journey of of cocaine. And if I did, I don't want to go, I I don't want to sit here and glorify it this morning, so please, as I explain this, don't think that there's anything glorious about this. But if I didn't have that drug, I just, I dreamt of it, like it, It totally consumed my life. Like everything I did, every ounce of my being, every morsel, every penny, every single thing I did was bent to get more cocaine. And it ruled and destroyed my life. It took everything from me. Until one night we were in a hotel room and it was falling out of my nose. I literally couldn't put it up there anymore. And it was either going to put it in a needle or, or begin to smoke it. And I began to smoke it. And that took me for a year of my life, and I was a mess, man. (laughs) I was the epitome of a mess. I was in downtown Hamilton, going out of my mind. I'd been up for four or five days in a row, and I fell down on my knees, and I began to sob on control because for the first time in my life, I knew I had a problem. Like Me and my buddies would start partying on Friday, and on Sunday, they'd all stop. They were like, we got lives, man. We got careers and jobs and all that. And there was just something. I mean, I could not stop. There was, I, was, I was allergic to drugs. And instead of breaking out in hives, I was breaking out in handcuffs and, and jail cells and really bad situations. And I knew that there was something wrong, but I didn't know what. I didn't know. Like, I could sit here today and tell you every single thing. I could tell you every detail of my life now and why I acted the way I did, which would take way too long, so I'm not going to. But I, it was so confusing, you know? It was so confusing. And God was just on this really back burner, like, God almost didn't exist to me anymore. I was like, you know, all those things that we struggle with in our early 20s, like, if God was so loving, why would he let me go through? And I, I'm sure, like, I'm not going, like, I could sit here and tell you story after story after story of craziness, like, and the people's lives I've affected. Like, there is nothing glorious about my testimony, nothing. I have messed up so many people's lives in the process. I messed up my own life. But I, we, I fell down and, and I had a crack pipe in my hand and dope in the other. And I literally looked up and there was a treatment center. And I was like, whoa. And I, I, I had no idea how things work or nothing. But I just pitched my pipe and my dope in the bushes I was done, like I was done. And I banged on the door and this lady comes to the door she's like yes can I help you and I'm like yeah you can (laughs) I need help and she looked at me and she's like well that's not how it works I won't say what I said that day but I was like well how does it work then (laughs) with some stringed words in between like I was like how does it work then like I need help and I want you to help me and um Anyway, I was I was weeping like snotsicles the whole nine yard. Like I I was so confused, and uh, so I reached in my pocket and there was a card, and it was uh, a pastor from Burlington, Scottish guy, and I kind of knew him. And I, I couldn't call my parents again. Like there's no way I could tell my parents I relapsed again. And uh, so he came and got me. Actually, he came he came he drove to Hamilton. He picked me up. And he brought me to the greater Toronto area's uh, detox center. And if there's a detox bed open anywhere in the greater Toronto area, they'll know. And then they send you there, right? There wasn't one bed open in the whole GTA, not one bed. So he's like, you got two options. You can go to the hospital and they'll admit you and you can detox there and no thanks. Uh, or you can come to my house and you can detox in my basement. And, uh, and so I chose that. And uh, I went to this guy's house and his wa- this, this man and the, his wife just loved on me. And I sat shaking in the basement for three days. Not eating, not doing anything, just shaking. Wondering how had I gotten to this point. So a week before that happens, there's this little French guy from Ottawa, his name is Ray Demory, and he was in Burlington, he goes to this golf tournament, and then he shares his story of how God called him to the streets of Ottawa to help addicts, right? So then the pastor was like, oh my goodness, would you be willing to go to Ottawa? And I was like, I spent my whole life running, right? That was what I did. When things got tough, I ran. And I owed a little bit of drug money and things like that, some debt. in in Hamilton so I was like yeah I'll go. I thought when I was going to Ottawa that I was running away from my problems. I really did. I thought again that I was like oh here we go again. Little did I know that I would run into the arms of Jesus Christ. Yeah amen and God in Ottawa and (laughs) I got off the bus and this little French guy you gotta just picture it he's like this big and he's like grande and I'm like (laughs) I never wanted to punch somebody so hard in my life. I, I, no, seriously, it was, it was anyway. Uh, and then he, he ended up bringing me to where the main house was, and that's where guys with mental illness live. And this guy with a pink toque and a beard on in June, middle of June, he's got this pink hat on, and he comes up to my window and he's like, he's got a cigarette, and he's like, right in the window, right? <laughs> I <laughs> locked the door. He's like, Come on in. I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I was literally, and I just sat in the van, just like, What have I gotten myself into? Uh, and then he brought me to detox. I'm going to stop there. And then we're going we're to finish that story in a bit. But I want to share with you guys uh, what I felt like the Lord prom my heart for the word. But then I'm going to tie that into the rest of my story. So it doesn't stop there. Like, everything I've told you so far is kind of depressing, right? We're like, Whoa. If I just stop there, i be like, that sucks. <laughs> but that was 12 years ago. So the Lord's done some great things in my life. And uh, I get a little bit emotional, sorry. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Maybe Eric would love to get you one. I'm just going to read two verses and then I'm going to... It's kind of like the end of a movie, you know? Sometimes you start a movie and it shows you the ending first and then it goes way back and tells the whole story. So we're going to kind of do that. Just because I want to be different. No, I'm just kidding. It just ended up this way. Look at verse 66 through 68. Um... So from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And when they say many, it pretty much means all of them. And in a few minutes, I'll give you a better picture of how many that actually was. Um, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Do you guys want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So what did that what what happened? Like he's got this great huge multitude following him, and then all of a sudden at the end of this chapter it says that basically they all left. Because he turns to the 12. That's all who's left is the 12. Do you guys want to go away too? No, we can't, right? So let's back up a little bit. Let's look at what happened, right? We know that Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. And here's what, in just, in the, just in the book of John, let's just look at a few things of what have happened in the life of Jesus and the disciples uh, to get to this point, right? To get to this point where thousands and thousands of people are following him and then they all leave. Jesus attracted a large amount of people by the things he did and the things that he taught. Okay. he attracted people that wanted to follow him because of the things that they saw and were amazed by it but he also attracted a lot of people by the things he said and that weren't so attracted by it either way he was attracting people right so let's look at those things up to this point John chapter 2 Jesus turns water into wine which is the first recorded miracle that he does not cheap, lousy wine, right, it says, but he chose the best wine for last, which has astounded them, right? They're like, usually people that bring wine at the end of a seven-day wedding bring whatever's left over, and it's some cheap wine, but they just drink it anyway because they've been on a bender for seven days. Whoa, this sounds like my story. Uh, <laughs> no, he chose, so why did he do this miracle? I think just because he cared, honestly. Just because he cared for these people. It wasn't anything they needed. People don't need wine, right? But I think just because Jesus cared for them, he changed their water into wine, okay? Which attracted people. You got to think about that, right? Especially the five guys that he told them to go get the water. Like you imagine that? They go get water and like, okay, here's your water. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do with it, but by the time it takes to crush grapes and do all that thing, like this is not going to be wine anytime soon. That's not what happened. In their faith, they go away, they come back, it's wine. They're just like, whoa, that's got to attract people. Then we see him clear the temple. So here's this caring, awesome, loving Jesus, right? Now here's this Jesus who comes in and completely clears out a temple of men by using the authority of his voice, a cord of a whip, like he used this big, huge whip, and flipped over their tables. We know why, right? Because basically they were selling... They were turning away their sacrifices, is what they were doing. People were bringing in their lambs and their doves and all that stuff, and they were examining them and saying, oh, no, no, sorry, there's a defect here, there's a defect there, and then they would turn around and sell theirs at a nominal fee. And ultimately, if you look through Scripture, any time that Jesus gets mad, it has to do with anyone stopping God's children from coming to him. Right? Remember when the disciples tried to take the the children away from Jesus when they're sitting on his lap, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It'd be better if you go tie a millstone around your neck and jump in the sea than mess with one of these, right? And any time that Jesus gets mad in the New Testament, it's because someone's stopping. And so God, uses, he uses this authority, and he uses this uh, mighty voice and, and just strength. And so all of a sudden, people are like, wow, this guy is, is amazing. Like, he's turned water into wine, and now he's clearing temples. And then in chapter 3 he tells Nicodemus that he has to be born again. And now here's this brand new concept. You got to think about that. Like sometimes I I'm, I'm pretty heavy on, on the Jewish people like back then you're like tisk tisk like you didn't just have faith. Like no like these people like their whole lives and their ancestors and their ancestors and them onwards were taught that you were supposed to be as perfect as you could and when you weren't then You were to sacrifice these animals and that you know your sins would be forgiven and then and then all of a sudden jesus steps in the picture and 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 singles out not just any jewish person he singles out nicodemus who was actually a part of the sanhedrin which is a 70 select men that ruled over the sadducees and the pharisees so this wasn't just some like joe blow jesus chose this guy with great significance with great power to say hey listen it's not that way anymore. But unless you actually are born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not inherit eternal life. And then goes on to say, for God so loved you that he sent his only son. And he was talking about himself. That if whoever believes would not perish, but have everlasting life. Definitely more followers, Right? Definitely now a whole new section of followers. Then Jesus meets this woman at a well and does what no other Jewish man had ever done in that time, was to talk to a woman that was a Samaritan. And if you guys know anything about back then, but the Jews hated Samaritans. And we could cross-culture it to today, like look back 100 years ago and it would have been the same way people in Alabama or Georgia treated black people. It would be with hatred. Now, all of a sudden, this man walks up and begins to talk to this woman and asks her for a drink of water. It's a very basic question. A little, <laughs> It's not a very basic thing that he's trying to say to her, though, right? And he ends up saying to her, listen, unless you, if you just keep drinking from this kind of water, you're going to thirst again. If you just keep drinking from the world, you're going to thirst again. And she didn't understand that. So that's why he goes into well, you've had five husbands, and now this one that you have, are not with that. Meaning, <laughs> you've been going to the world through different men and drinking. So he begins to explain all this to her and just touches the core of, of everything about her and her need. And it says, unless you drink of the living water that I gave you, right? And here be, and then this bursts the, the first evangelist, actually. She runs back in her town and says to everyone, you've got to meet this man who told me everything about myself. So how many people then followed from there? It says many. And it actually goes on to say that many believed because of her testimony. Then he heals the official son in chapter 4. And he says to the man, and this is the first time he says this, but he sees something going on here. He sees a theme. And he chooses to use it at this moment to this guy. And he says, man, unless you guys see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But your son will live. So he heals him anyway. Then he heals a man in a public place at a pool of Bethesda. And then after that, he does the biggest miracle of all, besides the cross. What is it? Feeding 5,000, right? We think 5,000 is a big number. No, it says 5,000 men, plus women and children. So up to this point, Jesus has done all these sorts of miracles. He says all these sorts of things, and it's attracted this big crowd, let's say 25,000 people. Let's say all those men had a wife, and those wives, like, I don't know, two, three, four kids each. Probably pretty normal back then, right? So somewhere between fifteen and 30,000 people are following him. So when it says many people left him, it's kind of an understatement. Like, this is a lot of people. So what could Jesus what did Jesus say that would drive 30,000 people away? Up to this point, everyone had been following Jesus either because of something they saw or something they heard. Something they seen and something they heard. And if that is how we base our faith, if that's what we base our faith off of, if, that, if we're here this morning to look only to Jesus for what we can see from him or what we can hear, then there's going to come a point in your life that Jesus is going to say something or God's going to say something to you and you're probably going to leave. And I've seen it happen countless times in my life. So what is it that he said? So let's look. Verse 48 of chapter 6. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am the bread of life. That's what he says, right? I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. So then he's referring to himself saying, I came down from heaven. Whoa. That's the first thing they were like. Okay. That one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they didn't understand, clearly. Then Jesus said to them, "Most surely I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in a synagogue as he taught in Capernaum, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Like, what? Like, we've been taught our entire lives that we can't even touch a piece of meat that has blood in it. Like, we can't even look at blood. The only one that actually deals with blood are the high priests. And now I'm supposed to drink your blood? This is hard. Can't understand it. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? Yeah, pretty much. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? So now he's going to talk about what's going to happen. If you can't handle me saying this, how are you going to handle me going up to be with my Father? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who would not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples, many, 29,988. No, that's bad math. 78. No, 88. Is that right? Wow, that's pretty good. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? So check check out what they say. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know. That's the key word. We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ. See, these people were totally fine to follow Jesus until they heard something that they disagree with or couldn't comprehend. So many times in my life, so many times have I seen this, that people come to Christ either out of a desperate situation or maybe they're inspired by what they see, and they come to Christ, and they're following, and they're following, and then all of a sudden it comes up to a place in Scripture or a pastor speaks or someone says something, and you're like, whoa. I don't comprehend that. Or that doesn't jive with me, or I can't understand that, I'm out. And they're gone. Why? Because they've been f- basing their faith only on what they can see, so miracles and signs and wonders. And you know, if I just get to church and lift up my hands and worship and get that bubbly feeling, then I'm okay, and then we leave here. with that must be team 20. That's awesome. But then we leave church, and there's no, there's no foundation, there's nothing. You know, is it okay this morning if God of the universe, the God who created us, the God who created the skies and the universe and the mountains... And everything, he created anatomy, created the human body and the eyeballs and the way our heart pumps blood and the way organs work, like the God of the universe that spoke that. Is it okay this morning that he says something to us that we don't understand? Is that okay? Or do I have to completely conceptualize this God, the created one, has to conceptualize and understand how God of the universe works? It's kind of what we do, though. Unfortunately, that's the way the world works. It's like, you know, Jerry Maguire, like, show me the money. You show me, and then I'll believe. That's not faith. Faith doesn't come by seeing, but by hearing, and hearing the word of God. Sometimes hearing the word of God doesn't sound so good. Amen? Amen? Hebrews chapter 12. Strengthen your feeble hands and your weak knees. Come on, get into a no fight. Because well, guess what? If you belong to Jesus, He's gonna correct you. Put your dukes up. If God loves you, He'll correct you. Well, I don't like being corrected. <laughs> I just like all the bubbly feeling stuff. I just like coming to church on Sunday and being with my brothers and sisters and feeling all good. I don't want to hear that I have to like stop sinning and being holy. No thanks. What? I have to stop sleeping with someone? I can't have fornication in my life? I'm out. But it feels so right. God has spoken to us, amen? God has given us his word and spoken to us. There's going to be times in your life that you're going to hear something that you don't understand. And God, Jesus could have easily chosen that moment to say, guys, you're not understanding. And he could have went and broke through it. He said, "This is an analogy. This is a metaphor. This is me speaking." But he didn't do that because he wanted to separate the people that truly believed in him, despite whether they believed it or not, and those that didn't. And he chose to do that. Has God ever spoke to you in your life? Have you read something like this but you couldn't understand? What was your reaction? I'm out. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we leave the church. That's not the kind of out I'm talking about. We leave spiritually. We still come to church. We still read our Bible. We're still part of small groups. But we check out. And it's what happens. And then eventually, if that happens long enough, you're not going to. We stay around for whatever reason. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's whatever. The difference between the people who abandoned Jesus and those that did not were that the 12 disciples spent quality time with Jesus. All the other ones were following him because of the things they saw and the things they heard. This life with Jesus is so personal. It's not a spectator sport. Church is not the end-all, the be-all. If they stopped us from having church tomorrow, if Justin Trudeau decided that we couldn't meet anymore... It wouldn't be the end of our relationship with Jesus, would it? It would probably actually help things. We were kind of in a stupor a little bit, right? We're kind of in this like melancholy stage. Well, I'm just gonna go to church on Sunday and show up to do this and do that. And we kind of get in this melancholy stage. That's why when Jesus they'll ask them, Are you guys gonna leave too? Like they just all left. Are you going too? What'd they say? Where are we going to go? <laughs> Where are we going to go? We've been with you. Here's the thing, guys. If Jesus is something you only conceptualize up here, something you believe, like you do the math, right? Okay, you tell me I need a savior. I need, I need Jesus to get to heaven. Okay, like, okay, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Like, I love you, whatever, right? And then we, we, we believe in Jesus up here. But if we don't spend time with him and fall in love with him, there's going to be a point in our lives that something tough comes up and we're going to be gone. The reason that the disciples didn't was because they had spent so much time with him that even when it came to the point they didn't understand, they said, where are we going to go? Let me ask you that this morning. You guys remember the world? For me, it was 12 years ago. If I think about leaving my faith, and sometimes I do, I'm, I'm human, uh, sometimes I just want to throw in the stinking towel and say, I'm done with this. Then I think to myself, where am I going to go? <laughs> what are you going to do, hang out with those turkeys down at Matty O'Shea's or something <laughs> Or guys that come to my hockey, I'm like, wow. Is that, is that what life would be like? Like, where am I going to go? Lord, you've been so good to me. And that's, that's the encouragement to say, oh, man. like, So here's what I want to do. I want to share four times that the Lord spoke to me profoundly in my life. Like, there was no doubt that Jesus spoke right into my life. And I can say that each time I didn't understand at all, and then I'll show you what my response was, and what the end result was. So, Ray Round day. <laughs> wanted a punch, right? So then, <laughs> so I go to detox for the first time in my life, and I'm detoxing off of off of uh, cocaine, and I'm sitting on the back porch, and I was smoking a good pack and a half, two packs of cigarettes a day. And these guys were off to my right, and they said Jesus. And it wasn't in a swear word. Like I heard Jesus my whole life. Right? But it was actually the first time in 12 years I heard the name Jesus outside of a swear word. And at the name of Jesus, my whole body went tingly, and I heard this voice say, Randy, I love you. It's like, like I hadn't been talking to God for a long time. Like I was some distant. God puppeteer up in heaven you know and if I could just do one good thing before I died and ask for forgiveness then I might go to heaven like that was my concept of God and uh and and he spoke right into my life and he said I love you and he said I have a plan and purpose for your life and I'm going to use all this hurt and all this baggage in your life to help other people and I was like I actually have water here but thanks that's wonderful And I, and I totally could not understand that. I could not conceptualize how the Lord was gonna use my life in any way. I felt about this big. And, um, but that, that kinda catapulted me that day. Um, I ended up joining a church in Ottawa, going to Bible studies, and two and a half months into this sobriety state, I actually talked my way out of treatment. So I ended up in second stage environment before ever doing the first stage, and uh, I relapsed hard. Ended up on a two-week bender, and almost died from the amount of drugs we consumed, and uh, and so it was finally after that that I that I that I relinquished control and said, "No, I I need treatment." So I actually I ended up taking treatment, um, and, and so you just got to look at this like for someone who had faced all that kind of abuse in their life, I never felt lovable. I felt that people tolerated me. People put up with me. Uh, And and, uh, I I suffered from ADD my entire life and uh, still a little bit do and it's been a thing that's turned a lot of people away from my life. Uh, You know it doesn't it doesn't necessarily attract people in. It's one of those things like why he interrupts me all the time. Um, It's not an excuse I'm just saying it's a part of my life and uh, and so and so going into that I never felt lovable. I never felt likable. I never felt, I felt like people just tolerated me. And I, and I projected that same view on God. And God just, oh yeah, come on in the fold. You're okay. And uh, I never felt like God of the universe personally loved me. And so that, that, that began to change my life. And I slowly began to believe it. It wasn't something that was like, oh, God loves me. Like I, I couldn't not comprehend how he could love me. But he began to show me by loving me. Amen? It wasn't like, Randy, I love you. Randy, I love you. Next morning, hey, I want to remind you, I love you. What he did was loved me. <laughs> this is a, you want to let somebody know that you love them? Love them. They don't need to be told every single minute of every day you love them, just love them. And he loved me. And that little man, that little French man, he loved on me, man. Like I was a basket case, and that guy loved on me. And I'll never forget that. He, he, that guy demonstrated the love of Jesus like nobody else in my life. Nobody else. Um, so, uh, then at the same time, I hear that he has a plan and purpose for my life. And I'm like, how's that possible? And I would go to bed with tremors at night. So now I'm in, now I'm in treatment. There's nights I go to bed, holding my bed underneath, shaking, shaking, going, I'm not gonna get high, I'm not gonna get high. Cause I was actually in treatment right downtown Ottawa. People were dealing drugs right in front of where I was doing. I would look out my window and there'd be a guy getting high at night. And that's what would cause it. Cause then I'd go to bed and I'd be like, you know, you know don't get high, don't get high, don't get high. And I would somehow not get high. And in the morning I would look out the window and that same guy was like leaned up against a building outside and just shaking. I was like, that was me, right? And I would just praise God every day that I didn't get high that night. That's how I lived my life for like a year until I finished treatment. And eventually I would go into a second stage of environment. And so here's what happened. I went into this really dark, dark stage. Like the first year of sobriety was kind of, you always had something to look forward to. I could get my one month chip of sobriety. Yeah, I got a month. And the next one's three months, right? So you like, Okay, I just got to make it two months and I can get my three-month chip and then someone will be proud of me, right? So you get to your three-month, and then after that it's six months, and then after that it's nine months, and then a year. So you always have these things. And then just before, and when, when people get sober, just before their one-year sobriety date, they throw this big, huge party and you get like this medallion and everyone pats you on the back and you feel good, right? And I remember getting all excited about it. I, I knew exactly what I wanted to have in script on the back of my little medallion and everything. And I remember feeling this sense that the Lord was saying, I don't want you to do that. And so then I began to think in my head, well, what happens after one year? It's a five year. I'm like, i got to wait four more years? <laughs> like, I could, I was like, I was like, I couldn't even, like, every day was a battle to stay sober at that point. So I couldn't even fathom staying sober for four years. In fact, I was convinced I was going to relapse after my one year because i would seen so many other people do it. And at this point, I'd probably seen six people die from coming back into drugs and, and overdosing or doing something, uh, getting in car accidents and dying. So anyway, God said to me, I'm going to use your life. And I couldn't comprehend that. And I remember getting this analogy about a cake. Maybe you guys, some of you guys have heard this. But uh, if you take all the single ingredients of a cake, so flour, sugar, some people, Amy said she'd eat sugar on its own. I, I don't know if people just take a couple spoons of sugar, but maybe it'd be the only one we would, or raw eggs if that's you like gym at five o'clock in the morning and <laughs> but typically we wouldn't eat flour, sugar, eggs, cocoa powder, salt, vanilla extract. Let's just say that's the recipe. Like we're not probably just gonna sit there and eat that. But for some reason, when it's mixed in a big bowl, added with a bit of liquid, baked in the oven. Out comes a beautiful cake, right? God began to show me in my life that there have been single ingredients in my life, a really long list of them, that had happened that don't taste good. But that if I was to let him, he would work me in his bowl, and he would work all those ingredients together. That's what the scripture said, right? We know that all things work together, Right? And that he would mix me in his bowl and then he would, through the Holy Spirit, bring me in his oven and then I'd be a cake. And, I was <laughs> and then I'd have to fight off people like,
1: Whoa.
0: <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> it's time for a new Bible. Why couldn't I keep the illustrations away from this? Eh? Wow. Anyway, fighting people off. No, I'm just kidding. But that God would make my life taste good. That like God would use my life to taste good, in. and that that kind of made sense. So anyway, you can use that analogy. But again, after that year of sobriety, I hit a dark, 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 dark time, and um, the most depre- And so I saw a bunch of psychologists and psych- psychiatrists and all this, and they all said the same thing. They said, "Randy, you've been depressed your entire life. You've been depressed since you were six, seven, eight years old." but your life has been so crazy and suppressing and drugs and everything that you haven't been giving yourself to be depressed. And so I just went off the deep end. Like I wasn't showering for weeks. I wasn't leaving the house for weeks. Like, you know, as if Gillette went on strike, like my face just was like, like, and I just didn't care. Like, and everyone was coming over and trying to get me out of it. And they were like, oh, you just got to do this and you just got to do that. I'm like, "Eh, go away. And then my, um, Ray Demaret the French guy says Randy like you gotta do something so I ended up taking a culinary an, um, a culinary course is a it was an introduction to the culinary world and 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 I loved it actually I excelled in it. it was you know voted most likely to succeed in the class and all that stuff and then three weeks before completing the course I dropped out because I just didn't care I was <laughs> like are you an idiot Like, I just didn't care. And uh, that's how depressed I was. So, in all that, I'm trying to read my Bible, doing Bible studies, I'm, you know, wrestling with God, trying to, and that same voice that told me he loved me pops in my head again. Now, I'm doing too long here, but just before that, I got a GST check for, you know, the credit for $1,600. And when you're a drug addict, that's a lot of money. So, I went to the mall and I bought all brand new clothes. Like, just, everything was just brand new. And that was, vanity was my, you know, my main thing. Like, everything had to match. Everything, like, I had to have the nicest of everything. And so I went and bought all these clothes. And I think, like, ten cartons of cigarettes or something. And all my money was gone. And I felt relieved at least I wasn't going to get high. And this voice speaks to me and says, Randy, I want you to give all your clothes away to the poor and I want you to give up and I had a queen size bed which was actually my bed and I was in you know I was in the master bedroom of the house we were living in with my own ensuite bathroom and and God said also I want you to give up that room to somebody else and I was like no you're crazy and so my life just only got worse only got more dark more depressed so two weeks goes by Randy I want you to give all your clothes away to the poor give up your room give your bed away No, kidney stones. No joke, got kidney stones. Worst pain I've ever been in my life. Took two weeks to pass them because my organs were so tight. Finally a doctor gave me Flomax and woo, out she came. And then finally the Lord said once again, I want you to give your clothes away, give your bed away, and give that room away. So I had it set in my, at this point I was just so miserable that I just wanted to feel something. Like I was void of every emotion. I was void of joy, happiness, anything. Like I had none. I was like, fine. And I, got, I had my list of all my friends I was gonna give my clothes away to, so that at least they, you know, Randy, you're the best. You know, get a little, you know, pat on the back. God's like, no. Ottawa Mission, coffee house. <laughs> I was like, are you serious? So. I I don't know about you guys, but I had a reject drawer, I called it. It was the drawer at the bottom, and it had like two pairs of Jordache jeans or something bad, like a pair of jogging pants and a couple sweaters. And if I was completely out of laundry, I would wear that in the house, lock all the doors, shut the blinds. Um, Yeah, they were ugly clothes (laughs) until my clothes were clean, right? That's the clothes he let me have. Those were the clothes. Fired my clothes away. Sold my bed for a thousand, so met the Lord halfway. That was good. <laughs> it's somewhere in here, I think, right? First opinions or something. <laughs> he was faithful and gracious with me, but I, but I ended up moving out of that house. I ended up in a house that had men with schizophrenia, and I lived in a room that was a closet. It had no door. It had a curtain. It had room for a single bed and a tiny little dresser. That's it. Like, what are you asking of me? But guess what came? Joy. And peace. And contentment for the first time in my life. So God said something I completely didn't understand. And I obeyed eventually. (laughs) Took a bit. And then he poured his grace into my life. Guess what? Two weeks later, my cousin came down and threw a bag of clothes at me and said, these don't fit me anymore, do you want them? And half of them were nicer than the clothes I bought. God didn't want to strip me down and make me look ugly. He wanted my heart. He wanted me to see that his love for me, his peace, his joy, was far more important than what I look like on the outside. I would do treatment for three years. I wanted to work all the time, but against everybody's advice, Randy, you're not ready, you're not ready, you're not ready. So I didn't work. Finally, get a job at a little Italian delicatessen in the Castros in the Glebe. Began to work with people with food. Began to have a passion for food and passion for people. And then I'm praying in my life, OK, God, like, you got to think now, too. Like, I was still not full of any confidence or anything. Uh, my teeth were still a mess, and I just looked a mess. And I kind of convinced myself reading through Corinthians that I was probably called a single life. You know, like, it's much better to stay single and just serve God, right? Because who's going to want me anyway? And if God gives me a wife, he's probably going to give me some messed up drug addict that's going to be worse off than me. And if that's the case, I don't want that, right? (laughs) That's my view of God, though. God's going to make me love some unlovable woman so I don't really want, but anyway, but in all that, I was like, okay, well, Lord, do you think that'd be possible that I could have a wife? Like, is that something possible? And I was like, you know, making 12 bucks an hour at Nakash is probably not going to cut it, you know, raising a family, but is there something I could do? Like, Lord, is there a job? So I just began to pray. Just seek out the Lord, Lord. Is there something for me? And then that same voice popped in my head and said, I want you to go to Perth, Ontario. I was like, you're not listening. Like, Perth was a giant step backwards for me. Like, you know, Joe Becker had already been there, and a bunch of guys I know had already been there. They wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning to do Bible studies and run and all this stuff. I'm like, no. Like, you're not listening. What I want? Like, I loved Ottawa. I loved the Glebe. I loved my life. Like, I was, for the first time in my life, liking life. Like, no, I'm pretty good here. And I kept hearing it. Go to Perth. So I'm in the car with my friend Andy Fleur one day, and I said, I think God wants me to go to Perth. Picks up his phone, calls Dan that second, and goes, Randy wants to come to Perth. You want to take him? And Dan's like, yeah. (laughs) I'm just trying to talk to you about it. You don't want to go. (laughs) But here's my analytical mind. And there's other times the Lord spoke, and uh, I'm only sharing some highlights today. Every time I listened to what God said up to that point, my life changed drastically. Not in small increments. Like, my life changed immensely. So I was like, I have to go. Because I'm not okay with the subpar. I'm not okay with mediocre. I want all that God has for my life. So I came here. I came, <laughs> I came to Perth. Like, I don't know, like, what was it? It was uh, February of 2009. You know, and... Uh, Came and met the Shilkies, and I lived with the Gosses. So the house I now own, I lived in there. I was discipled in that house. I lived, I, sleep, I slept where my son sleeps right now in, in a little eight by eight room with another guy. It's like the things I did. I was like, wow. Um, but the, God began to really work in my life, man. Like, you know, when you come to Christ, and all the bad stuff goes away. Like, you know, the swearing dropped off, and the drugs and all that. But God wanted, was showing me much deeper in my life that I was really filled with hatred and anger. And some of you guys have been around, were around back then would know I was a pretty angry guy. Like I walked around with a frown on my, like tonight will be a good memory for me to, because the first time they did a baptism, Paul Goss asked me to go swimming. And uh, I used to be pretty fit actually my whole life. And sobriety kind of changes that, laziness. <laughs> So I became a little unfit. And there were some girls around. I was like, well, I'm not taking my shirt off and going swimming. And I actually said no to him. I was like, no. And he's like, no, come in. I was like, no. And I literally fought with him. So, um, And later he would do something with me that showed me that I was just a really selfish, self-centered person. Um, But he wanted me to admit that, which I did eventually. Uh, But God showed me that I had a lot of anger and hatred in my life. And he began to really change my life. But then guess what happened? Gave me a wife. Yeah. And a really good one. Not some drug addict. (laughs) Unlovable, he gave me a really beautiful wife. And actually, I'll share one more thing, and then we'll close. I'll share one more thing that God spoke to me. And it was before we started dating. I was doing some work for her mom, uh, touching up paint and concrete work at the house. And I remember sitting on... And at this time, I'm like, I'm seeking Jesus in my whole life. Like, I'm reading... I read the entire Bible in four months. Like, I was just consuming everything with the Lord. Uh, but not set free yet. And I'm sitting on the porch, and I'm painting. And that voice pops in my head and says, Randy, I see you as redeemed. And I was like, okay, like, how? And then he began to tell me. He said... I'm outside of time. You're in it. So you only see the next thing, right? The next thing, the next thing. But I don't live like that. I'm like the blimp. I'm like of the Macy's Day Parade, right? You gotta just watch one at a time. God's like the blimp. He sees the beginning and the end. And then he said this. He said, pardon me for the young kids, but he said, I saw you redeemed while you still had a pipe in your mouth. And I was like, (coughs) That was a 7, I called it a 747 jumbo jet experience in my life that took me from the ground off to soaring. And for the first time in my life, I could look up and say that I felt redeemed in my life, that God actually saw me redeemed before I got out of my sin. And that's how God sees us this morning. So I hope that these are encouraging stories for you guys. I hope that uh, this was a time of encouragement. And... Uh, There's going to be times in your life that you're going to hear something that's difficult or that you might not agree with or uh, that's just really hard. And I would just encourage you guys, if God's asking you to do something, uh, here's what I want to say. Look for every opportunity in your life to be obedient because it just unleashes God's blessing and power in your life. And that's what Dan was sharing last week. That obedience to Jesus... And sometimes we have the Ten Commandments and we have the things in the Bible, but there's going to be times in your life that God wants you to specifically do something or not do something. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's usually a thought that just comes over my head. It might be, I don't want you to speed. I want you to do (laughs) the speed limit. I don't want you to watch that movie. Or whatever it is. And it's really easy to push those voices away and just do it anyway, right? And then we're just on to the next thing. I really implore you guys... This week, look, be listening for every opportunity that God might want to say something to you and look for a way to be obedient and then look and wait for change in your life to come. And maybe you guys are where I was at. Maybe you guys struggle with anger like I did. Maybe you struggle with lust and, 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 and the temptation of that. And maybe you guys struggle in areas in your life and you're wondering, how can I have victory in my life? Whatever it is that you might be struggling with, I would really implore you guys to look for those opportunities in your life to be obedient. And then I want to hear personally the story afterward because every time I did it, amazing blessing followed. Amen? Uh, Dave's going to come up and the team, and they're going to lead us in a time of worship. If this is your first time here, we share communion every Sunday. We like to. Take part in communion, and so we're going to do that. And uh, I just encourage you to grab the element from the back anytime you're in the song, then bring it back to your seat, and we'll take it together. Let's just pray. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you again for this time. Thank you, Jesus, for this time of being in your word and uh, just looking back at what you've done in my life. We thank you this morning for what you've done in all of our lives. And We pray now, Lord, that you would bless this time. Lord Jesus, if there's something you want to speak to us this morning, we want to give you that opportunity. Lord, may we have listening ears to hear. And um, we bless your name, Jesus, as we go into this time. Amen. Amen. If you're here this morning, and you don't know this Jesus that we've been talking about. Um, you know, if this is foreign to you, um, I just want you to know that He is so deeply in love with you that His entire mission in this life is to draw you into Himself and to be with Him. There is no, I mean, we could lead in a prayer and all that, but there is no recipe for your relationship with Jesus, other than saying, "Um, I believe. And if you're in this place where you want to see before you believe, it's not going to work that way. But that if you would put a little bit of faith, the Word of God says that if you, a mustard seed size of faith would move a mountain. And I believe this morning that God wants to show you that kind of love. And so if you in this time would want to say, God, I believe, but would you show yourself to me? We would say that prayer with you. And then if you want, after communion, we're going to sing one more song and, and there's going to be a few of us in the back. If, if you're a lady and you want that, Amy will be, love to pray with you or Jim and myself or Bob will be in the back. And if you want to declare that or pray with us, we would love to do that. There is no greater decision in your life. There is no more important decision in your life than turning your life over to the care of Jesus. He just so greatly loves you, wants to be with you. And then all those things that happened in my life can happen in your life. He'll take the anger away, and he'll bring in peace and joy and contentment. It's not like your life becomes perfect, but it's a lot more manageable that way, amen? So let's just look at the body this morning. God, we look at it, as it resembles your body, the piercing, the bruising, the brokenness that you faced for us, God. And uh, we're grateful, Lord. We're grateful that you would go through that amount of pain and suffering for us, God, that we would have life, Jesus. And so we thank you this morning. Let's take the bread. Lord this morning you chose blood something that typically stains Lord that only by your power can completely wash and keep clean we thank you for your blood this morning God that's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west you remember them no more God we thank you God that by your blood we have power to overcome sin and temptation in our lives and Jesus we praise you this morning God for your blood Let's take the cup together. So Dave's going to, if you find it's too late and you want to go grab your kids, do that. We're going to sing one more song. If you need prayer for anything or want to talk to one of us, we'll be in the back. We would love to do that.
1: See you tonight. That's right, 5 o'clock. All right, if you don't mind standing to your feet, and yeah, we'll finish off with one more more praise song. Sorry about that, Aaron. We'll try this one more time. Blessed be your name.